Well, to tell the truth, I don't even want to look at that Second Samuel passage, let alone preach from it. I wish we didn't have to talk about such a painful topic. But then again, what kind of church would we become if we avoided and ignored issues like this? How would plugging our ears actually start to contribute to the evil? I think we've all been sort of learning that lesson in our culture over the last year with the sexual abuse scandals. Not listening, not talking about it, has compounded the problem. Now, there's an added level of complexity here because we're doing this in the presence of the church. We know that the problem isn't just out there. We can't pretend to be you know, morally neutral and objective like some news source that can write an article or present a, a television uh, expose on something and always say the problem is there and there and there. We in the church know that the problem is just as much in here and in our hearts. We know that we sin. We know that maybe we haven't done some horrific things that we see around us, but we know the roots of those things are in our hearts. We're under under no self-illusion that we are without sin. And we have found grace. So when we confront sin, we feel uncomfortable. We've seen judgmentalism go horribly wrong. And so we're hesitant to speak when we see it in other people. What's the Christian response? Should I ever call out evil? A couple of months ago, many of us were riveted at the testimony of the Olympic gym doctor, Larry Nasser, who was on trial for abusing over 150 women and girls. And in the middle of that testimony, many of you saw a video that went viral. It was the testimony of Rachel Denhollander, one of the victims. And in the midst of that testimony, she gave a courageous word of forgiveness to her abuser. And as that video went viral and took over and and got brought up into many churches because she was professedly a Christian and gave a wonderful Christian testimony in the midst of it, in the weeks following, in an interview, she uh, said this. She said, I found it very interesting, to be honest, that every single Christian publication or speaker that has mentioned my statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any of them, have recognized what else comes with that sta- came with that statement, which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both of those are biblical concepts. Both of those represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus on only one of them. Okay, but how do these two concepts fit together? How can we rightly respond to evil and not undercut the gospel, sapping it of its true power. 
And how do we preach the gospel and not have the ability to call evil, evil? Well, let's venture in together into this conversation, but not alone. We do it in the light of God's word. And so as we read it, let's ask God in his presence here with us to bless us and give us understanding. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, Even the parts that are hard and scary and difficult, Lord, they're good. And we need uh, to see its word to us now. Bless us and encourage us in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So after reading that horrific account in 2 Samuel, many of you may feel disgusted. Some of you may feel angry. But I don't think any of us would feel the need for moral clarity. We don't need someone to come in here and tell us what is wrong. Oh, that's clear. Perhaps you didn't even notice that God is not mentioned here in this passage. There is no need for a word of God from a prophet or anywhere that says, this is evil. The way the narrative even is told draws us out so that we as the reader are not left passive and is just looking at it or waiting for some instruction. No, we're drawn to actually bring a judgment ourselves. But for clarity's sake, let's see what is wrong in this passage. What is the evil here? We'll look at a couple of things. First, and one that I say frankly gets lost due to the gravity of the second sin, The first sin is the pursuit of sex outside of marriage. Now, I know that's going to seem petty compared to everything else that follows, but it's not petty according to Tamar. Tamar is held up in this whole section as the epitome of biblical faithfulness. She embodies godly virtue. And in all of her speech and her actions, she is a sharp contrast to the other men in this passage, specifically a sharp contrast to Amnon. In verse 12, when she resists Amnon's offer to lay with her, Tamar describes his actions as shameful and outrageous, something not done among the people of Israel. And she will not act like the other nations. She will not act like the other peoples around her that say that this is okay. Now, those are strong words, and I think sometimes we can read those strong words and assume that those strong words are meant for the sin of incest. Because that is something that seems to be present here. She calls him brother. He calls her sister. But I believe there's actually a good argument here that this is not incest. Gordon Hugenberger makes that case, pointing out that there are certain key points in this text that that show, yes, Amnon and Absalom were half-brothers. Both of them in this text are called sons of David. But Tamar is never called a daughter of David. In fact, she, when referring to him, doesn't even call her father, calls him the king. Amnon calls Tamar in verse 4, Absalom's sister. And she was off-limits in verse 2, not because She's my sister. She's off limits. The reason given in that clause is because she's a virgin. And as strange as it might sound to us, the terms brother and sister in the Old Testament are frequently used 
in romantic relationships. We see that in the Song of Solomon. It's a term of endearment. And of course, we might say, well, that's really weird. I can't imagine calling my spouse sister or brother. But of course, they might look at us and say, wow, um, a guy calling a girl he likes babe or baby, that's weird too. But I do think that the most persuasive argument that says this may not be brother and sister relationship as, as by blood is that in verse 13, Tamar suggests a solution to Amnon's desire is marriage. This woman who is, is of the highest godly virtue suggests to Amnon, go ask the king for my hand. He will not deny you. It would seem strange for a woman so so strikingly virtuous to suggest something that is very clearly forbidden in the Bible. It's reasonable to assume that Tamar is an adoptive sister, related not by blood, and, and thus she could have legitimately married Amnon. That was a solution here. Well, why do we say this? Because if that's the case, then the strong words in verse 12 are very clearly about sex outside of marriage. Throughout this passage, her virginity was a virtue. It was an honor worthy of a long robe that she could wear and display to all around her. It was the glory of the the life that she was leading in faithfulness to God. It doesn't matter how common it was to the neighboring countries. It doesn't matter that it wasn't a big deal to people of other faiths. She was a child of God. She lived to a higher standard, and Amnon should too. And that's her point. Amnon is acting like an outrageous fool. Or literally, he's acting like a godless person. In our culture, we look at that and we say, well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Because sex outside of marriage, frankly, is all over the place. And more than that, it is glorified today. I mean, you think of the last TV and movie show that you've seen that has portrayed sex. And I would almost guarantee that that would be outside of marriage. I can't think of the last time that that a scenario in something I saw on television actually involved two married people having sex. Outside of marriage, it's exciting and new and fun. Inside of marriage, if it's ever shown, it's stale and unsatisfying. That's the message we keep getting sent and pushed upon us. Listen to Tamar. That's foolishness. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. This modern view of sex has so warped our understanding of what should be a beautiful and wonderful purpose of true intimacy. It's designed to be the powerful bond that holds two people together. The special secret that only two people can share, that unites them. And so the rest of the things that they need to handle in a very intimate partnership gets solidified by that act. It's not a commodity that needs to be out on the open marketplace, consumed. Now, I think this narrative could have gone completely differently. 
one could argue that this story began with love. Amnon loved Tamar. We know that because he says so in a private conversation with Jonadab, that he loves Tamar. It's even said by the narrator in verse 1, and and we should know as reading Old Testament narratives, we should trust the narrator's statements. He uses the word love. He doesn't use the word lust. There are plenty of Hebrew words for the word lust, but he uses love. Yet once Amnon treated sex as a conquest, he turned that love into bitter hatred. Listen to what he says. He tells her that he hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And he casts her out of the presence going so far as to get one of his thugs to remove him, move her from the room, bolting the door. She pleaded, even at that stage, that marriage, perhaps even now more importantly, was essential. And he did not listen to her. And our sense of rightness should rise up and say, that is wrong, that is clearly sin. And, of course, the second sin, the sin of rape. Again, we don't need an outside voice telling us how evil this is. But notice the story does help clarify what rape is. Here again, it's important to see that this began with love. Amnon's confession of love. And one could even argue that Tamar reciprocated. As she's brought in to minister to to Amnon, she cares for him in very tender ways. She makes cakes that, actually the Hebrew calls them heart cakes. And as she gives them to them, she also, as he uh, uh, offers sex, she, even resisting, says, "But, but consider marriage. But that context, all those things said in that private room, every intention that may have been misread does not lessen Amnon's crime. She said no, and that was enough. It doesn't matter that she made him nice cakes. It doesn't matter that she proposed marriage or offered it. She said no. The Bible here clearly defines rape as a lack of consent. And so when the narrator describes this, he leaves no doubt that this was not a mutual act. The narrator says he violated her. He lay, in fact, the word very bluntly says he laid her. I know there's a recent debate on the complexities of the issues of communication and what can be said and what can be inferred, but, and those are all ratcheted up higher even when sex is outside of marriage. But it's not that complex. She said no. We need to hear it. It's clear Amnon's sin began by not listening to her. And this violation destroys not just the purpose of sex in that it was supposed to bring intimacy and bring love. It destroyed the humanity of the victim. 
Verse 17, Amnon says about Tamar, get this out of here. He doesn't even use the word her. She is dehumanized and left desolate. We don't need anybody to tell us how evil this is. We get to the end of this story and we have no trouble declaring Amnon's deeds are wicked. He's worthy of condemnation. So when verse 21 comes and David, the righteous king, steps onto the scene, we expect justice. And he starts out well. He gets angry. But then we're never told why he gets angry, or to whom he gets angry. And then if we wait through the rest of chapter 13 and through the rest of chapter 14, David doesn't act. Not at all. How can this be? Well, when we see the full context of this episode, we realize that that's really the point. Despite that David's name doesn't come up here much, This story is all about David. And the case is not complicated. Deuteronomy 22 gives the legal response, the biblical response in this case. It prohibits rape. And it prohibits it based only on the testimony of the woman. If a woman is in the city and can cry out for help during the time when she's being attacked, well, that's a different situation. But if she's in the field, she has no ability to cry out. Well, then she, her testimony stands. And the man, it says, the act is compared to that of attacking and murdering his neighbor. It's a capital offense. Amnon should be killed based on this testimony. And you see here, David didn't have to rely on some second-hand account or some rumor that gets passed around. You see how the the situation worked. Verse 7, he is placed in the center of it. He's actually the one that brought Tamar into that chamber. Yes, he thought it was under the guise of of Amnon being sick. But he was there bringing her into that room. It wasn't her going in. And the next thing he sees is her crying, coming out with ashes on her head and a torn virgin robe. Where's the trial? Where's the punishment? Now, if we're to read on... too long of a section to have us look at today, but if we were to read on into the the rest of this chapter and the next, we see that what happens is Amnon gets put in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a sanctuary city. It was a place that was there under the protection. If you had committed a crime, you could stay there safely. And all those who had the legal right to avenge the, uh, the crime could not lay a finger on the, on the, the perpetrator. But the sanctuary city is never intended to be a safe haven. It's always intended so that there would be enough time for a proper trial. So evidence could be gathered, so justice could be done rightly. Amnon stays in that sanctuary city for two years. And then inexplicably, David just drops the case. He lets Amnon go. And as he lets Amnon go... He's basically saying the case is dismissed due to insufficient evidence. Absalom, during this whole time, is furious. Absalom was Tamar's brother, David's son. 
and stepbrother of Amnon and, and looks at this case and says, this is not right. His hatred is not just for Amnon, it's also for David. And so as soon as he can, he plots to take his biblical vengeance, what was due him as a right, as the next of kin. And he does that as soon as David drops the case. You see in here, this whole action is a chain reaction. Amnon commits this crime. David doesn't react justly. And so Absalom gets furious, kills his brother. David holds a grudge. And the two, Absalom and David, that are left, fight in this huge family feud that will last several chapters in a total of seven years. And it will continue to perpetuate the family feud that goes on in this dynasty that was supposed to be the dynasty to save Israel. It descends into ugliness. So the question is, why does David not act? Why does he not bring justice? Why would he drop the case? And the most obvious answer is, this, all, this whole situation was all too familiar to David. Someone of power in the royal household sees a virtuous woman, and he takes her, and he commits sexual sin. You don't have to turn your Bibles back more than one page to see this is exactly what David had done when he took Bathsheba. And after that event, Nathan the prophet cried out and condemned David to his face and brought this punishment that he is going to see the sins that he has committed thrown back in his face in the lives of his children. They will be repeated in front of him like the father who catches his son reaching in and smoking one of his cigars. And the father, rather than taking the cigar from him, says, okay, you want it? Smoke the whole thing and then smoke the rest of the box so that you're so sick of it, you're not going to ever think about having a cigar again. Except the roles are reversed. David now gets to see in his son ugliness of his sin thrown in his face until he gets sick of the sin that he so casually did. Just to be clear, though, this is not God punishing David's children. This is God punishing David. Punishing David. It's an important lesson that we need to know. It's a painful lesson. Sin is never self-contained. It can never be controlled. I can't think of a much more powerful deterrent in the whole world than seeing my sin lived out in the lives of my children. Look, I can sometimes rationalize my sin that, okay, you know, I can handle it. It's not that big a deal. I can control whatever circumstances or consequences come from that. Maybe you're like that too. You do something, you know it's wrong, but you know what? You don't really have to confront it because you can handle it. Can your children handle it? Maybe it's something that, perhaps a, a, a temptation to be dishonest or, or to give in to lust. Maybe it's something besetting, like this desire for control, controlling all of your life, controlling every detail of it. Perhaps 
It's anxiety. Perhaps it's people-pleasing. Perhaps it's workaholism. And you think, well, it's okay. I've got it under control. I don't really need to confront it because it's not that urgent. But sin is not a vapor. It's not something that's going to disappear. You can handle it. But what about the people you love? Because as we do it, as we don't call it out as evil or sin, well, then it gets implicitly approved of and imitated and mocked. The, person, the purpose here is not to punish. It's not to make parents feel guilty. But it's to make us reflect upon how we treat sin sometimes as minor and manageable. It's not only that our sin can affect those we love, our sin affects us in ways that we're not always, we cannot always recognize. It will warp us. It warps David's sense of justice. He is now confused about right and wrong because his moral compass had been compromised. David's responsibility is not only as father but as king. And that is to exercise moral authority. He needed to be fair and just, yes. But now he found himself judging a case that's so familiar that he can't bring himself to bring justice on his son. Man, that resonates. That resonates me as a father. It resonates with me as a Christian and as a leader. How can I stand up and say, well, do as I say, but just don't do as I do? Isn't that the definition of a hypocrite? Isn't this the struggle of a Christian? Because we know that the sin that we see out there and the sin we see in others, we know the roots are in our own heart. How can I point out to others? Shouldn't I just remain passive and quiet and shrink into a subjective morality where I just worry about my own stuff and not actually worry about it in anybody else's life? Doesn't sin disqualify us from saying anything? No, it doesn't disqualify us. We must speak. David's not called to represent his own personal standard or his preference on how to live. He's called to represent the objective justice of God. Yes, there's no one who follows perfect morality. But to ignore what God says and his standard is right and wrong actually compounds the problem. And it isn't the gospel, it is not the message of the gospel to just shrug off sin. Because when we treat sin lightly, we treat God's goodness lightly. When those who are in authority are paralyzed to respond to wickedness, everyone suffers. And David's inaction here has ramifications through him and through the, the nations. That's why Paul, when he talks to Timothy as a, as a leader and as, a, as an elder in the church, can, can say to Timothy, mind both your life and your doctrine because it's going to start affecting one and the other. Your doctrine is going to change. If it's, if it's screwy, it's going to change the way you live. And if your life is out of accord, it's going to warp your doctrine. Okay. So Paul says we've got to do something. Every, from this passage, Second uh, Samuel says we've got to do something. We have to act. Don't be like David, who's inactive. But the question comes for us, what are we doing? And specifically, what as the church are we called to do? How do we respond to evil? Let's think about this. Let's think about 
the church's response. I want to look at two responses here. First, the response to the offender, the one caught in sin, and then secondly, the church's response to the victim. Both are important. First, what's the church's responsibility to Amnon? What is the church's responsibility to the one who is clearly caught in sin? Well, first, I'd say from this passage, we need to recognize that we are in a different position than David was. Israel was not simply the church. When you read the Old Testament, you have to understand that it also acted as the political state. It was given a duty not just to address spiritual issues with spiritual responses. It was also given the uh, duty and responsibility to render civil punishment. And God allowed that dual function to be present in Israel for a time. For many purposes, typological, instructive, and others. But we must understand that those roles are always distinct. And boy, I'd say you're going to really misunderstand the Old Testament and many passages if you don't make them distinct. I mean, think about the Old Testament. You can, you can be executed for a crime you've committed. You could be stoned and still saved. You can go into exile, God's punishment for sin, and still be godly. We see many prophets who have been suffering under the the penalty of sin and the external temporal ways and yet still be saved. Likewise, you can have never committed a crime that deserves external punishment and be spiritually bankrupt. Those are two key important things that go on in the Old Testament should, should help us to understand as we read it. Now, God is both behind both of those institutions, both civil and spiritual. And here's something that we often miss. God is behind them both today, even though they're separate, even though the church and the state are not the same as they were in Israel in that way. God is behind civil authorities even when they are far from pure. That's why Paul and Peter can, in the epistles, both exhort the the church to pray for and submit and honor civil authorities because they understood that those represented authority that was given to them by God. God was behind it. So we should support all civil authorities and, and encourage them to uphold justice. We don't want a judge, I pray we don't want a judge, to stand there in a civil court, hear a case, a criminal case, And say, you know what, you clearly committed this crime, but I forgive you. Go ahead and leave. That would be ugly. We should encourage. Even when there's genuine spiritual repentance, even when you can be completely restored to Christ and to God's people, if there's still a crime that that is committed, the gospel can be true for you, And yet you should still face civil punishment. And the church, as church, doesn't participate in the trial. The church, and we should restrain ourselves from casting judgments and certainly restrain ourselves from executing punishment in that regard. 
But that doesn't mean that the civil sphere is the only sphere that can respond to sin. It does not mean that the civil sphere is the only sphere that can respond to wickedness. The church has a place. Christ has given the church authority and responsibility to exercise what has been called church discipline. Church discipline, which means not only do we have a duty to instruct the body generally about what is right and what is wrong, we have a duty and a responsibility to confront and to rebuke, and sometimes even to censor individuals who are in sin. There's a lot of abuse out there that, that comes with, that has, that has maybe in the baggage of your history and experience. What this is not saying is that the church's role is ever to use shame or guilt. We're not stitching scarlet A's on people. It's not a matter of certain prudes in the congregation exerting their own personal preference over others. No, there are some guiding principles that we need to look at quickly. First, discipline is to church members. It's not the role of the church to condemn the world out there in their wickedness. The condemnation comes by the fact that we say that those who are outside of the church need to be in the church if they want to escape any sort of judgment. That's very clear. It involves church members. But secondly, discipline only involves those matters that can be proven by Scripture as sin. It's not my morality or somebody else's morality. It's God's morality that needs to be upheld. Thirdly, there always needs to be a process, a process that Jesus has instituted. And we can find that most clearly laid out in Matthew 18, where if somebody sins and and a person is a witness to it and, and approaches that person individually as the first step to say, hey, that is sin. You need to repent. And if they don't repent, you get someone else, not just a random person, but another witness. So that they can both say, yes, we both agree that that's sin. Now do you agree and call to repent? And if they don't, then you bring it to the third stage to the church. So that you can hear godly people who've given this role and duty to say, yes, that is sin. Will you repent? Why is that necessary? Why is it important? Why can't we just be happy and smiley and just be accepting of everybody and not even get into the dirt of sin? Well, there's three really great reasons. And I'll go through them just real quick. First, it's the glory of God. The glory of God is at stake. If sin is ignored, then God's goodness is ignored. His glory is at stake. If sin is ignored, then basically we're, uh, we're implicitly telling everybody that's approved of. That that is part of biblical morality. Secondly, the purity of the church. If the church looks exactly like the world, if there is no distinction, then we become really, uh, uh, in a very uh, visual way, we undermine the gospel. We deny the reality of sin and the hope of salvation. The third goal, and the one that often doesn't get talked about, is the reclamation of the sinner. Restoration. It is to, stay, it is to save them. Listen to how our church describes 
the process, the responsibility given to the church as compared and maybe differentiated in your mind from the state. This is from our book of church order. The power which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction. It is to be exercised as under the dispensation of mercy, not of wrath. The church in discipline acts the part of a tender mother, correcting her children for their good, that every one of them may be presented faultless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like in practice? It looks like if it's a public sin, yes, it needs to be dealt with in public for all the reasons just given. But if it's a private sin, you don't need to hear about it. But the person who has committed the, the sin needs to be confronted with it for their own good and for the glory of God. It involves listening to them. It involves bringing Scripture in. It, be, it talking about what is sin. It involves a call to repentance. And listen, when repentance comes, the church's response is full and complete absolution from Christ, full stop. Yes, we might talk about the need for genuine repentance, if there needs to be a conversation there. Yes, there might need to be some structures set in so this person doesn't fall again. But the remission, the forgiveness of sin is tied to the the work of Christ. There is only one sin that is never that is that is not met with complete forgiveness from Christ. And that's the sin of the failure to repent. The, the, the sin of saying, yes, I know that sin, but I don't really care. But every one of the other ones coming before the body, the church is compelled to offer what Christ says. You are forgiven. No payments, no punishments, no Hail Marys, no period of time that you need to feel guilty until you can get over it. No, those are all ways we pay for the sin. Christ has paid for the sin. Surely a loving church needs to walk with somebody who has sinned, even grievous sins. And it may be a case where it brings you to repentance and restoration to Christ, and then in the same day, walk you to the police station and have you turn yourself in to the civil authorities, praying with you and singing hymns along the way, because both are right. It is not our duty to be the police station, to be the judge, but to see God in both. You see, David got angry with Amnon, but he did nothing. And that denied both mercy and justice. It wasn't just. Amnon's sin was declared to be basically okay, no big deal. And Amnon himself never got to understand the spiritual darkness that had entered his heart. But it also wasn't true mercy. He never got crushed by the weight of his sin. He never got to see his own need for repentance so that he never got the opportunity to turn from it to a Savior that could be his only hope. See, David failed. David failed Tamar, David failed Israel, David failed Amnon. And the church will never preach grace if it cannot identify sin and condemn it. So that's the church's responsibility to Amnon. But the church also has a responsibility to speak to Tamar. What does the church have to say to Tamar? What is the responsibility to victims And I say that knowing there are people, several people in this room, who know that pain. 
And sadly, we find ourselves often like the men in this passage, each one of them, for their sin was that they didn't treat her as human because they did not listen to her. The author makes that point. Verse 14 is very clear. Amnon did not listen to Tamar when she said no. Verse 16, Amnon did not listen to Tamar when she pleaded not to kick her out. Verse 20, Absalom sees his sister in distress. The words are very nicely put in the ESV. Keep your peace. And literally it says, Tamar, be silent. And finally, David knew the testimony, saw it, heard it, but did not listen. He didn't take down the testimony. He didn't bring it to trial. They all kept her silent. But let's be clear about this one thing. God did not keep her silent. Her words are preserved here and have been preserved for 3,000 years so that the church, whenever it opens its Bible, can hear her words. Will we listen? And when we listen, will we love and walk with her, grieve with her, weep with her pain? And even affirm in her the dignity that was never taken away. We need to be a church that listens. We need to be a church that points to God. Points to a God that cares about right and wrong. Points to a God that has set up institutions that should care about right and wrong. And even when they fail, there will be a day when he will not fail to look at every sin and to count him either on their judgment or on the cross. It is to this God that we can entrust full justice so that we can say to Tamar, you can know there is a God of justice and you can let go the hatred and the anger that consumes you. He will deal with it. We need to, appoint, we need to point to a God who doesn't just stand at a distance. We need to point to a God who knows what it's like to be a victim, who knows what it's like to enter this world and suffer emotional and spiritual and physical pain. A God who has been in your darkness and more than anyone knows the depth of darkness. And finally, we point to a God who is making all things new. Yes, even to the desolate, even to the violated. We point to a God who is even going to mend her robe so that she will stand pure and blameless on that day. He'll heal all wounds and wipe every tear from every eye. That's the God we come to in this table. Let's take a moment now, both as sinners and as victims of sin, to come to a God who has dealt with it, dealt with it fully on the cross. Let's pray.